You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Well, if you had the opportunity to travel to Geneva, Switzerland, there is a park adjacent to the university there, and there's a memorial to the 16th century Protestant Reformation. It's called the Reformation Wall. It's uh, pretty spectacular, and right there in the center are, uh, are, are some statues of William Farrell, John Calvin, Theodore Beza, and John Knox, just to name a few, and chiseled into the stone on either side is one of the great mottos of the Reformation. It's the Latin phrase, post tenebras lux. In Latin, that means after darkness, light. See, for the reformers, um, as they were looking back and they think, thought about the Middle Ages, the glorious light of the gospel had been eclipsed by Um, Empty traditionalism and a salvation based on works and merit instead of salvation that is based on grace alone through faith alone. So think of a solar eclipse. When the moon passes between the sun and the earth, uh, for a moment it completely blocks the face of the sun. Um, There's an umbra, a shadow that begins to pass across the face of the sun. And... Um, As the shadow begins to cover up the sun, um, darkness comes upon the land. And it's it's pretty spectacular because it'll happen during the daytime. It's light outside and then it becomes dark for a moment. And now let me just state the obvious. Um, When an eclipse takes place, the sun is not destroyed. Um, The light of the sun does not go out. It's not extinguished. The sun still burns with all of its intensity, all of the luminous brightness. All of that is still there. But just for a moment, it's hidden by the moon. The shadow that passes across it cannot harm the sun. It cannot annihilate the sun. It can only obscure it. And that's how the reformers felt, that the the gospel had been hidden. It was still bright. It was still true. It was still uh, the grace of God for sinners. The gospel itself hadn't been harmed. It hadn't been annihilated. It had just been obscured and hidden under the darkness of empty traditionalism and salvation by works for a while. But as the reformers started to study the word of God for themselves, as the the word of God became available um, to all through innovations like um, the printing press, it was as if that shadow had begun to pass. The, the, The beauty and luminous brightness of the gospel was shining forth. Post tenebras lux. After darkness, light. This morning on this last Sunday in Advent, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 9, and he, discu- and he describes a land that is covered in deep darkness. That the sun um, has been covered for a long time. And when that happens, everything looks dark, everything looks hopeless, everything looks bleak. And Isaiah foretold of a time when life-giving light would dawn again. That there was coming a day when that eclipse of darkness would pass. With the coming of a new king. 
And so this morning on Christmas Eve, we want to look at that king and his kingdom that's described for us in Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 to 7. We want to see that after darkness there will be light. Real simple outline today. Verse 6 tells us about the king. Verse 7 tells us about his kingdom. Simple outline, the king and his kingdom. We're going to start together in chapter 8, verse 22, because I want to unpack that darkness. This is one of those verses that often uh, gets recited a lot at Christmas time. For to us, a child is given, but we have no idea what's going on historically, why the land, why Isaiah would look at the current situation and see a land covered in darkness. So look with me at chapter 8 and verse 22. Isaiah says this, here again the word of the Lord, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah is looking at the current state of affairs and he sees no hope. He just sees deep darkness. Now, obviously, this is a metaphor to describe the current events of the day. It wasn't as if they had this, you know, multi-year long eclipse with no light of the sun. The sun still coming up and rising and falling. But there is a, um, a, a proverbial darkness over the land. So what's happening? Well, this, the year is 735 B.C. and we are in the ancient Near East. And Assyria is threatening to expand its empire into the northern kingdom of Israel and into Syria. And if you go back a little bit further, uh, a couple hundred years, um, the, the one nation of Israel has been divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And now Assyria is threatening to come in and overtake that northern kingdom as well as Syria. So this northern kingdom of Israel and, and, and Syria form an alliance to join forces against this all-conquering force of Assyria. Now, Israel and Syria, don't get those confused. They're Syria and Assyria, two different nations, okay? So Israel and Syria are coming to uh, this southern king, um, King Ahaz in Judah. And they come to him looking to strengthen their alliance because they figure three is better than two. If you can get more countries in your alliance, it's, it's better for you. And so they come to King Ahaz, who is the king of southern Judah, looking to strengthen their alliance. Now, you can read all about him in 2 Kings chapter 16. Okay, um, Just a, a word to help you in your Bible study. All of the prophets... All of their ministry happens um, during the reign of, uh, of the king. So you can read about the, the prophets, their historical backgrounds, when you read through books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Their ministries are happening in this time period. So this part of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7 through 12, historically is taking place in what's happening in Second Kings chapter 16. They go together. So when you read them, you need to read them together because Isaiah doesn't repeat the historical context because it's already written there for you in the Bible. Now here's what we know about King Ahaz. Here's the summary we're given uh, about him. 2 Kings 16, 2 through 4. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the king's of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering. 
according to the despicable practices of the nations when the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. He's a terrible king. He's actually compared to the kings. When it says he was like the kings of Israel, he's saying he was like that northern kingdom. Who, like when you read through the northern kingdoms, um, kings, they're all terrible. That's the reason why they're eventually conquered in 722 is because they have given themselves over to um, idolatry, child sacrifice. They've basically become a pagan nation. And what the writer of 2 Kings is saying is Ahaz has become just like them. He has set up pagan temple worship all throughout the land. Even one of his own children, he has sacrificed to a pagan god. And he leads the nation towards idolatry and despicable practices. Now, to say the least, King Ahaz is not a man of faith. However, the Lord in his kindness sends the prophet Isaiah to him. Ahaz is not looking to God for anything. And yet, the Lord says, in my grace, I am still going to seek you out. Because that's what God does. He seeks us out even when we aren't looking for him. And you can read all about how um, Isaiah uh, interacted with King Ahaz through Isaiah 7 through 12. So Israel and Syria come to King Ahaz to make an alliance. Now, they don't come with, uh, with an offer of friendly negotiation. They don't come and say, hey, um, it's up to you. We, we sure like it if you joined our forces. Uh, but if you don't, you know, well and good, we'll go off and do our own thing. They come with an army. And so it's, not a, it's, it's really an ultimatum. It's join us or we are going to besiege your city and throw you out. They say either join us or we will invade Jerusalem and replace you with a puppet king who will join our forces. And the Bible tells us that Ahaz is terrified. If you look in chapter 7 verse 2, the Bible tells us the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And at this point, Isaiah says to Ahaz, listen, I'm a prophet. The Lord has told me that if you will just put your faith in him, he will deliver you from the army that's outside of your door right now. In fact, he says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Isaiah, he's, he has an opportunity to forsake his trust in political alliances and in his pagan gods and put his faith for the first time into the Lord and to see what the Lord will do for him. But Ahaz doesn't listen. So he's driven by fear and he decides to trust in his own political maneuvering. And in fact, he goes to the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III, He goes to the Assyrian king and he says this in verse 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. So instead of joining forces with Israel and Syria, he goes to the king and says, listen, they wanted me to join forces with you. But I I didn't listen to him, 
I am your servant. I am your son. Now will you help me? In fact, he goes into the temple of God and takes all the gold and all the silver, all the precious things that the Lord had instructed them to make, and he takes them and he brings them to Assyria and gives them to the king as a way to say, let me show you how loyal I am to you. Here's some gold, here's some silver. They're precious. I took them from the temple. They're sacred. And I'm showing you my fidelity to you. This is enough to buy the loyalty of Assyria. And they come and they do in fact deliver King Ahaz from Israel and Syria. So the Assyrians come and they win the battle. Now this leads Ahaz into further pagan worship and idolatry. In fact, he sees a pagan altar in Assyria and says, man, that thing looks really cool. He has it designed and built And then he takes it back to the temple. He removes the altar of God and puts this pagan altar right there inside of the temple. And he starts moving all the furniture of God around. Even though God has given very specific instructions for how the temple is supposed to be designed, how you're supposed to worship, Ahaz says, no, 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 we're going to use this building to worship the Baals. And they desecrate the temple. And the king's descent into darkness brings the nation as a whole into that same deep darkness. So Isaiah is just looking out of the land and seeing it covered in pagan idolatry. There's nothing distinctive about the people of God anymore. There's no, there's no regular worship. There's no sacrifices being offered to the Lord anymore. And in chapter 7 and 8, Isaiah begins to prophesy about the coming destruction of Israel and Judah. See, all before it was about the the coming destruction of the northern kingdom. And now because of what Ahaz has done to lead the people into this pagan worship, now you start to hear, now Judah's going to fall. The southern kingdom is going to fall. And as history goes, this prophecy comes to pass. Israel's conquered by Assyria in 722. Judah is then later conquered in 586 by the Babylonians. And it's into this deep darkness that Isaiah also offers a message of hope. So Judah hasn't fallen yet. He's in this already but not yet period where he's like, it's going to happen. We are in days of darkness. But God gives Isaiah a vision through the halls of history that there will come a day when the darkness passes and light comes once again. And he says this, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Now it's interesting. This is a prophecy about the future. And if you were paying attention to the grammar, it sounds like he's writing in the past tense. And he is. He's using um, a Hebrew construction called the prophetic perfect. It's when you speak about a future event using past tense language as if to say because God has promised he's going to do it it's like it's already done see we speak about the future with this conditional sense because we don't control the future we can't orchestrate like all of the events in time to make it such that that our words about the future can come to pass but that's not God God can speak about future things in the past tense because when God says it's going to happen It's going to happen. 
When God says it, it is as good as done. And so Isaiah is giving the people a real hope in the midst of darkness. Commentator J. Alec Mateer writes this, The darkness and distress are real, but they are neither the only reality nor the fundamental reality. In any given situation, we can either sink into deep despair or rise to faith and hope. Isaiah insists that hope is part of the constitution of the here and now. Look at me. It is right and good for you to look at your current situation and see reasons for despair, to see reasons for um, tears, to see reasons for grief, to look out and go, it is not okay. In fact, if you, if you aren't doing that, then you're not paying attention. There are things going on in our world and in our lives where you can rightly say this is not good. But Isaiah reminds us that it is not the only reality, nor is it the fundamental reality. Because into the darkness, there will be light. And this hope, Isaiah says, will come at the dawning of a new king. Post Tenebras Luke's, after darkness, light. And here it is, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah tells us that this light comes to us in the birth of a child. But not just any child. This child is born from human parentage but is given to us by God. And we know that this child will be a boy. For to us a son is given. And this child will be of royal lineage. We find that he is a prince of peace. In verse 7, he comes from the, the line of David. And Isaiah goes on to tell us that the government will be on his shoulders. Now think about that analogy. If the government is on his shoulders, whose shoulders is it not on? It's not on ours. That, that's the idea of a, of a, of a burden. That the, the responsibility and the weight of government will no longer press down on us. In other words, this burden and responsibility of reigning and ruling will no longer weigh us down. Because this new king accepts that responsibility. This new king accepts the burden that comes with ruling. And his shoulders will be able to bear the load. He will be able to handle it. And then... We're giving four titles uh, of this new king. And so what Isaiah is doing is telling us about the nature and character of this new king. And at this point in the narrative, you might be thinking he's talking about a new future king. But as we start to unpack these words, you're going to start to get the feeling like that this can't be any mere human child. He's called Wonderful Counselor. This word for wonderful is the nearest word that the Hebrew has to the word supernatural, meaning it's, it, it's, it's not from this world. In fact, it's often used to describe the acts of God. We already saw one of these in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 20 when um, the Lord says to Moses, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders 
That's the same word that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And if you remember from our series of Exodus, the things that happen after Exodus chapter 3 are quite wonderful in their broadness and scope and um, just the, the supernatural reality of the plagues that befall Egypt. This king, in other words, will have a discernment and counsel that is remarkable. It's wondrous. It is, it is beyond anything we could ever have ourselves. It is literally wisdom from above. Now contrast that with Ahaz. He has wisdom from below. Everything he's doing is in his own strength, in his own flesh. It's, it's satanic. And leading the people to worship pagan false gods. And yet this new counselor will have wisdom that is from above. Ahaz, whose decisions and wisdom brought ruin and darkness on the land. Contrasting that with a king with this wonderful wisdom who will lead us to flourishing and light. He is also called Mighty God. Notice the language is intensifying. This title Mighty God is used to refer to the Lord himself later in Isaiah chapter 10, which starts to set our gaze for who this king is beyond mere human fulfillment. This child is human, and yet this child is also called mighty God. And so we start to get this category for us to look to this one who was both human and God. And with the help of the New Testament... In the person of Jesus Christ, we know him as the God-man. He's fully God and fully human. A divine nature and a human nature coexisting in the one person of Jesus Christ. Not only will this new king be Emmanuel, God with us, he will be a mighty warrior. This word for mighty could just as well be translated as hero. He will be our hero. He is the one we are looking for redemption. This new king will not only be Emmanuel, which means his presence with us, he will also be mighty God, the one who protects us, presence and protection. He's also called everlasting father. The idea of father here conveys the care and protection of a father. Kings were often looked as like fathers of the land, the ones who would bring care and protection and provision. These titles speak to the character and nature of this king who will rule with fatherly care and concern. Like a good father, he'll, he'll discipline when discipline is what is needed. As a good father, he'll, he'll instruct when instruction is what's needed. In other words, he will take a personal interest in our well-being. That's what fathers do. They look at their sons and they look at their daughters and they have a personal vested interest in their well-being. Finally, he's called the Prince of Peace. This word peace, shalom, means wholeness, completeness. It means freedom from anxiety. Can you imagine that? A time when there's just nothing concerning you, nothing keeping you up at night, nothing filling your head with frenzy. No worries. All your relationships are at total harmony. Where sin brings constant conflict in our relationships with God and with others, peace is the resolution to that. It's the reintegration, the restoration of our 
relationships. I don't know about you, but when I think about peace, I think about something that's very elusive in our day and age. Despite our desperate need for it, it often seems like peace cannot be found. And yet there is a coming king who is called the Prince of Peace, meaning he will bring the peace that we so desperately need when he comes. So when you take all of these titles as a whole, you get the impression that no one would be able to do all that. When you think about all those titles, you're like, yeah, I don't know that there's any king who would ever come who can do all of that. No one then will be able to meet all of those expectations. In fact, in the coming years, Ahaz would die and his son Hezekiah would reign after him. And the Bible tells us that Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He got rid of all the pagan altars. He got rid of all of the idols. He rededicated uh, the temple to the Lord, reestablished the Passover, put all the furniture back in its place, got rid of that pagan altar, put it all back together. And he was a very, very good king. But not even he could bring about the fulfillment of the words of Isaiah. And so it created this longing, this expectation, this looking for another. Who will come? Who will be born to us a son? Who will be given by God? Who will be the one to bring the light that we so desperately need? A Messiah who would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. And for those with eyes to see, that child born to us and given to us is Jesus Christ. He is our wonderful counselor. He is true wisdom from God. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 24 says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Colossians 2, 3, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is that wonderful counselor. As our mighty God, Jesus is our hero who gives life to defeat Satan, sin, and death. 1 Peter 2 and 24, he, Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Isn't that what a hero does? He gives up his life to save another. As our everlasting father, Jesus is the one who loves and cares for us like a good father would. He says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As our Prince of Peace, Jesus is the one who makes peace possible, who brings wholeness. Colossians 1 and 19 verse 20, he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. These are just a few verses that show us how Christ has fulfilled all of those titles. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ, could live up to such titles. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ, could be true light to come after such darkness. Verse 6 tells us about the king. Now look at verse 7 with me about his kingdom. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So when the king takes up his throne and he takes the government upon his shoulders, here's what happens. 
His reign and rule increase and expand. The scope of this king extends beyond the borders of Israel. Do you hear that? The increase of his government. This king is going to be the king of all peoples, all tribes, and all nations, which really is, has always been the desire of God that all people from all walks of life, from all ethnicities would be restored to him. And again, you start to see that this king's reign and rule will extend like that of an empire. And yet, because of who this king is, his extension is without exploitation. See, as Assyria is expanding its empire, it does so at the cost of the people. But this prince of peace, as he expands his empire, people are not exploited. When earthly kings extend their borders, they do so at the expense of the people, but not this king. He is able to extend his reign and rule, and it leads to the thriving and flourishing of all under him. Why? Because his kingdom is marked by peace and justice and righteousness. Lord Acton famously said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And he was absolutely correct except for the one exception to that rule. Jesus reigns with absolute power, but his power is not corrupt, nor is he corruptible. No one will be able to oppose his authority. No one will be able to undermine the peace and justice and righteousness of his government. And in the same way that the language of verse 6 causes us to look beyond the here and now of his time to another, verse 7 causes us to look beyond the here and now of our time. If verse 6 is about the advent of the king, verse 7 is about the second advent of the kingdom where he comes to establish his kingdom forever. How can we be sure that this will happen? How can we be sure that the king will come to establish his kingdom forever? Isaiah tells us that the Lord, Yahweh himself, will be the one to see it to completion. When we fast forward to the New Testament, you see the New Testament writers uh, tracing Jesus' lineage to the line of David. That's connecting him to this verse. He's given the title of Emmanuel at his birth, God with us, which connects him to the prophecies of Isaiah 7. He begins his ministry in Galilee, just like Isaiah predicted in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 9. When you look through the ministry and life of Jesus, you see him often speaking about his coming kingdom. All of this connects Jesus to the prophecies of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. So very quickly, what do we do with all of this? Like, how do we make these verses more than just readings that we recite at Advent? I have two things for us. First, we hold on to this hope. We are not a people of abstract, objectless hope. That's how you often hear hope spoken about in our culture. It's just, I, I'm hopeful. Like, hope in what? Like, I'm just, I'm just hopeful in hope. No, that's not Christian hope. We don't hope in hope. We hope in hope. Christ. Our hope has a real object connected to it. We have a king who is unlike any king you have ever known, and he is the king that you've always wanted because he rules with true wisdom, real authority, perfect peace, and righteous justice. 
Isaiah was written to a people living in real darkness. And it was given to them as real hope that they could hold on to. And we are no less different. We live at a time of deep darkness. And this is the hope of the gospel. That we have a king who has come, who has given his life to make us uh, uh, to, to participants in his kingdom of light. And he is coming once again. That means there is an end to corruption. That means there will come a day when there's no more disease, there's no more poverty, there's no more war. All evil and all misery will be gone. And Jesus promises that when he comes again, he will wipe away every tear. That is true hope you can hold on to. And second, we invite others into this hope. The good news of the kingdom of God is meant to impact our lives. It is meant to change us and to live to the point where it impacts the way we live so that people are curious about the reason for the hope that we have. People should see that you are different, that you receive bad news in a different way, that you live through suffering in a different kind of way because you have a real message of hope. This is good news to be shared. Why? Because peace has a name. Hope has a name. Love has a name. And so let's be a people who share the name of Jesus with neighbors and friends and family so that they too can thrive under the reign and rule of Christ. Seven Mile Road, Christ our King has come. And he will come again to establish his kingdom forever. This is the promise of Christmas. Post Tenebras Luke's after darkness light. And that is why we can truly say Merry Christmas. Let's pray.